It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app, you can take us with you anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome Ryan Cooper to the show today. Now, Ryan is a finalist uh, in a program of the Warner Media Access Canada Writers Program. And so it's a pleasure to have him on. Now, you know, Ryan, you're from the Peguis First Nation. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Treaty 1 Territory in Peguis, Manitoba. So uh, I think there's three of us here in the industry. Uh, it's the biggest reserve in Manitoba, so it's like... Interesting that there are such few people in the industry, but yeah, it's pretty. It, it's awesome to be one of those three people. William Prince is from there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. William Prince. We actually went to school together uh, <laughs> in Pegwa Central. We grew up in the same class, same grade. Um, yeah, I mean, I always thought he was going to be something like a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> he's just so incredibly smart in yeah. school, but he's also an incredibly musician. So I'm really yeah. happy that he took the took the road that he took. Yeah, and he's got that big, booming, baritone voice. It's great. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. I love William. I love his music. Uh, great. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about some of the stuff that's been going on in your life with your career. And congratulations, um, you know, Thank on being you. one of the finalists for this uh, Warner Media Access Canada Writers Program. You're in there with uh, quite a few other people, both in Canada and in the United States. Yeah, there's two versions of the program. I think one is for writers in the States and one is for writers in Canada. Uh-huh. So the uh, amount of talent that's attached to, to this group of people is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> and like to be a part of that is like such an honor and such a surprise. And, you know, I work, don't get me wrong, I work my butt off for sure when, I, when, I, when I'm in this industry. But to be chosen as one of the finalists like blew my mind. Especially that first initial like meeting when the Zoom cameras all turned on, <laughs> and I saw the amount of talent, and I was just like, "Holy moly! It's, this is insane." <laughs> That's great. So, aside from that, of course, uh, as we said, you're you're from uh, from Peguis First Nation, uh, Ojibwe heritage, and uh, you're mm-hmm. a graduate of the National Screen Institute CBC New Indigenous Voices Program. Um, the NSI Indigidocs program, and uh, you produced an award-winning short documentary that went on to be programmed in festivals around the globe. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it was really exciting. Like, um, the first uh, New Voices program was kind of like my real gateway into the industry and allowed me to, you know, spend time on set and Mm. in a production office. And that's ultimately where I wanted to kind of like spend my time, whether I'm a writer or a producer, those are the two things that I love to do in this industry. So doing those things like together at the same time within many projects that I'm working on right now, not just the Warner media project, Mm. but it's, it's just been like a real dream. I've, I've been dreaming about this industry for a really long time. And, uh, you know, NSI, also the Pegwis TLE Trust um, were kind of the two believers in the initial kind of like launch of my emerging career. And it was amazing to have that support. Mm. Now, uh, your, uh, your age is shown here. I believe it says you're 36 years old at this point. 
I'm actually 37, but yeah. <laughs> Close enough, right? <laughs> 37. <laughs> but I always say I'm 25. No, I'm <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I'm 37 years old. I didn't, I honestly didn't start in the industry um, until I turned around 30. Yeah. I was an actor before that for a little while, but couldn't yep. really break in. Um, just because honestly, there wasn't any space right. for people of color. In yeah. this industry, you know, when I was 30, it's actually changed a lot in the last five yeah. to six years. Finally, we're becoming a little bit more visible and, uh, you know, and kind of in charge, not fully in charge, but kind mm. of in charge of our own narratives, Yeah, um, which is really exciting. And that's why I really love this program, too. Um, right. We had a meeting yesterday um, and they told us to really, really lean into our identities. And that's kind of the storytelling I like because I always pull from my own identity, whether it's my indigenous mm. identity, my two-spirited identity, my, um, you know, living in a rural community like Pegwis and then moving to a urban center like Winnipeg and or Toronto, which is where I'm kind of living in between Pegwis and Toronto now. Mm. Um, but all of those identities I use inside, all of those parts of my life definitely play a huge role in in my storytelling. Yeah. So I'm really happy to be part of this program because I get to really lean into that. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, of course, you, you're being Indigenous and two-spirited. Uh, there's another side of your upbringing that I, I see is mentioned. And it's something that, um, in, in for some people, they may have thought they wouldn't it wouldn't allow them to move into the writing world. And that uh, is point of dyslexia, that you ha- suffer from that as well. Yeah, I have, like, pretty severe dyslexia. Um, It was always... I never, ever saw it as, like, something I couldn't overcome. Even my teachers in, like, high school use... Or, like, even before high school uh, always told me that I was going to have a harder time achieving my goals because Mm. of it. Mm. But I... My parents taught me resilience and how to, like, work really hard and have an incredibly hard work ethic. So, yeah, dyslexia was definitely not definitely a challenge, but I never th- saw it as like um, a block or mm. something. Yeah, I just saw it as like another avenue that I'd have to work with while I was doing something that I wanted to do. I actually created my own um, alphabet in high school. Yeah. Uh, I guess it was before high school because I couldn't understand my writing, so I'd have to like. I'd have to manage how I saw things on paper so that other people could at least understand what I was creating. It didn't work. I still had to sit there and read whatever I was writing to yeah. my teachers so that they can understand what I was saying. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I kind of created my own alphabet. I only added maybe like seven oh. or eight characters to the alphabet that mm. was already existing. Mm. It was just, it didn't look the same. Right. Um, so I had to like reread everything that I was writing. And, you know, I created a story that uh, I, the reason why I started to become a writer is because I wanted to beat my dyslexia. And then I also fell in love with writing. At the same time, I actually wrote a story called The Hummingbird and the Flower mm. about, uh, you know, a relationship in my family that I didn't understand as a kid. Mm. So that I, I always use story to... Um, articulate what I was thinking, even if I couldn't use words to, to explain that Mm. I used actionable things in a story to understand how and what I was 
feeling. And I've always been like a really creative kid. You can ask my mom. She'd probably be like, you're a handful because sometimes I would just act out what I wanted something to be. Um, because I didn't know how to use words correctly, which is funny because now I'm a writer and I, that's all I use is words. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a real interesting journey from being a kid with dys- dyslexia to an adult man now who is, uh, in a Warner media program about writing with dyslexia. So it's been a journey. But, yeah, uh, but wow. a really great one. There's some other comments I see about yourself, not only about dyslexia, and the fact that you're not afraid to sort of talk about past battles and acceptance of yourself. I mean, that was another struggle you had, I understand, when you were growing up. The, the two-spirited world that you you know, you know found yourself in and, and you were trying to come to terms with, uh, you got pretty bummed out, I understand, at some point. But it was your parents that helped you through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My parents definitely... Um, well, I, I, I grew up in a Christian household um, my entire life. So coming out of the closet as gay at first, because I didn't understand what two-spirited was at the time, uh, it was really hard for me. And I was in the closet for a really long time. And, you know, entering relationships that were like in the closet as well and couldn't really, you know, come out into the outside world was mm-hmm. really hard, especially when uh, you're in a, you're in a space that is very toxic masculine, like hockey. Yeah. Um, it really dictates a lot of your actions. I remember holding my hands in my pocket because I didn't want to like flick the wrist or uh, always picking like very masculine colors because that's what masculinity is. And uh, so, yeah, it was a really hard time to like really not be my true authentic self. So I turned to a lot of drugs and alcohol to, um, to live Mm, (laughs) honestly yeah uh because i don't think if the drugs and alcohol were there at the time i don't know what i would have done because i was living in a time where it wasn't okay to Mm. be who i really was so Mm. it wasn't necessarily me not being able to me not wanting to come out was the space that wouldn't allow that to happen so i i substituted with a lot of negative things and you know i heard a lot of people especially my family uh, in those times, and I use that in my storytelling as well because right. I want to heal from it, and I feel like storytelling is a way of healing from the things that you feel shame about. So mm. that you can, uh, the things that I feel shame, I put a lot into my story because I really want to work through that shame. And honestly, storytelling is like I don't even know how to explain what storytelling is to me. It's like a religion. It's like it's uh, it's like healing. It's it's also the way that I figure out how to express myself instead of using drugs and alcohol. Now I use storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So like it was very, very hard 10 years of my life for sure. Um, But then I became, you know, um, uh, I started to become sober and now I've been sober for over eight years. Congratulations once again. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, speaking of your stories, uh, you you have a you have my saf, sassy Sasquatch story. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, my sassy Sasquatch, honestly, was uh, I was talking to my elder, and my elder was like, I, I had a hard time connecting with this grandfather teaching because I was two spirited at that time. I mm. really embraced my two spirited identity. And I wanted to connect with my culture and my identity mm. as an indigenous person. 
And uh, every time I try to connect with something, it felt off. And I always thought it was the Christianity side, right? I always mm. thought like, oh, it's because I grew up Christian. So therefore, like, I must be Christian. This is why I can't relearn these things. Mm. But then my elder was like, well, how are you perceiving the teachings to be? Like, I know what they stand for. Uh, absolutely. But in your mind, how do the spirits act? How do they move? How do they look? <laughs> and I always told him that there were these striped characters that they, you know, had masculinity and these colonial perspectives that were conditioned upon me is how I was filtering these teachings through my eyes and my elder was like why would you do that when you're too spirited why would you not connect with two spirited spirits for these grandfather teachings and it just like it freaking blew my mind in that moment I was like holy shoot like I don't know if I can swear I'm sorry um I was like this is crazy in there for, and immediately, immediately the sassy Sasquatch appeared in my head with honesty. Nice. And I was like, I really want to tell your story. And now I'm telling the story through that lens. And, you know, this non-colonial Sasquatch that comes from the spirit world to like tell people to live honestly and like not have conditions through their perspective is, is what I've always wanted to create. So now, yeah, the story became, uh, I pitched it originally as the way that I just spoke about it to CBC. And, and you know, the first I turned it down because, and I, and I see why, because it wasn't really my full, mm-hmm. it wasn't really my full self. I wasn't right. putting myself into it. Right. But then they, after I, after I switched the perspective and put myself into it, my T-spirit identity and the way that I filter things through my lens, they greenlit it for development. And now we're literally about to start writing the scripts. So that was exciting. That's cool. That's so great. Congratulations once again. Thank you. Can't wait to see this uh, when it gets finished. Fabulous stuff. That's so exciting. (laughs) No, yeah, I hope it gets greenlit for production right now. We're only in development. So I'm hoping that they see the value in the story and what it can do because it's a lot of, uh, you know, universal themes around identity and um, even just like a coming of age story. So mm-hmm. I really hope they see the value in that and we get green for production. That would be amazing. Yeah, it sure would be. Right. I think, well, you touched on the past, but, and also the present, but the present in, in two phases as well, because one, um, for indigenous people to see themselves and two, to educate non-indigenous people about, Hey, we're still here, right? We're here. Yeah. Uh, absolutely like that's really really one of my goals in this industry like i have a lot of i have a lot of goals and those are definitely on the top of the priority list but there's also that other thing of like creating capacity Mm. in this industry as well Mm. um like i said i wanted to become a producer not because no actually i didn't want to be a producer it was out of necessity Uh that i became one right because there was no indigenous producers that were that you know cbc or any of the broadcasters or whoever you know had enough um had enough knowledge to Mm. work with like bigger projects at least that's what i kept hearing but then i feel there are a lot of producers like there is you know paula devonshire who is like somebody that i would love to work with someday because i their their perspective around indigenous identity and how to decolonize the set Mm. where it's like taking the hierarchy out and putting the circle in Mm. where we're all kind of like this family unit versus like i'm the boss you're the employee this is how it works like i don't do that on set 
And that's really important that you said it that way because it, it explains partly about the, uh, I think, the Indigenous thinking. Just like you said, it's more collaborative. It's like being somewhat vulnerable and vulnerability is, is, a, is a real strength when, when you think of it. Because in order to be vulnerable, you have to be strong to be able to, you know, show that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's more of like a communal thought process. Like mm. you're always thinking community. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, coming from a res, yeah. that's all I grew up with is yeah. communal thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and also like that's what I love about Warner Media as well and being a part of this program is they they think about community. Like, like I said, we had a discussion yesterday and, um, you know, if this project that I'm working on doesn't get picked up, they have mm. a great sample and they will 100% send it out to people that think I can be staffed on. So it's always about community, right? And every time I create something new, a new sample, they ask us to send it to them immediately so that they can you know, use that to staff us on other projects too. And also me being indigenous and a part of the J Treaty, I can get my dual citizenship, so it makes it more easier for me to be staffed in the U.S. and mm-hmm. um, you know, creating my literally creating and pitching a show that will be greenlit or picked up yeah. from Warner Media because it's a it's a little it's it's interesting. I mean, it can be done in terms of creating a show and them picking it up for production yeah. and or development, uh, but it's easier to do it if you're you're from you know that part of Turtle Island, which is the right. states. Yeah. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Ryan Cooper. We're talking to him about his life and uh, the great success that he's had uh, in the last number of years and some great stuff that he's involved with right now uh, as he moves forward. As we, we were, he's just mentioned, the uh, Warner Media Access Canada Writers Program. Uh, Ryan, you know, part of the comments around around you that people have said or, or for instance you know not only your creativity but your passion your work ethic you talked about the work ethic that your your parents handed down to you right and yeah. um and when you when you hear that kind of stuff coming back to you uh what do you think about when you when you hear that stuff um gosh i don't i don't know like i just i <laughs> um <laughs> I just keep my head down and do the work. Like I don't pay attention to the things that are happening around me too Mm. much Mm. because I just, this industry, like I said, it's not like work to me. It's more of like, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know (laughs) how to explain that. Like it's just not work. So I just do it. Like I like writing, creating, like pitching, like doing all these things and creating character and no character that are, that I can, that I can actually, feel like I can have a conversation with and sometimes I really do it sounds kind of crazy but I have conversations sure. with these characters that I create um, and and that's what I do but all the all the noise around me um, in terms of like you know my name and um, the things that I'm doing and all of this stuff like like I don't know like it's a great <laughs> it's a great icing on the cake but what the what I like is the creative process within right. this world and you know, all the other stuff is just icing, and I, mm. I appreciate it all. Yeah, right. Nicely said. Um, now, the other thing you have created is this bi-weekly group. You've got this uh, film fam collective. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, there's there are indigenous people in this industry now, and we're being allowed to, like, share our narrative and all this stuff, but we, it's very sparse still. 
Um, so what I wanted to do is create um, an indigenous film fam mm. that we can connect and, you know, be there for each other and and heal from whatever we're going through and just elaborate and vent and also enjoy each other's successes. And um, yeah, so it's been a really amazing opportunity to work and not work, but like talk with all these amazing and amazing indigenous creators across Turtle Island. Um, and we're all, regardless of where we're from, the East, Central, West, we're all dealing with the same stuff. So it's nice to feel not alone. Mm. And, uh, you know, we do that bi-weekly to, to remind ourselves that we're doing this because we want to create change in the industry. Um, and when I say I want to create change, like I don't want to exclude anybody. I actually want to include everybody. Mm. And that's the same kind of thought processes that the, in the, the film fam have as well. And, you know, all of us film fam are actually starting to do some pretty major things in the industry now from like years ago to where we are now. We're mm. actually like creating our own shows. We are, um, you know, working on panels, executives, like we're all we're all becoming something more than what we were five years ago. Yeah. And I think that's great. But I also think that it's not enough. Yeah. And um I'm excited to see the change happening. And like I said, this bi-weekly film time is just a reminder of hard work pays off, mm. but we need community to mm. do that mm. because I don't think if we didn't have the bi-weekly thing, I don't know if this industry would be worth it mm. to me mm. because of the, of the uh, colonial perspective in the hierarchy perspective um, it's really, really hard to always be in that space when sure. you don't think like that. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it gives me hope that the future is changing. Like we talk about how we're going to decolonize the set all the time, <laughs> how we can be more inclusive of yeah. everybody on the set yeah. um, and, and creating a space for, you know, trauma prevention on this space because it's super traumatic being on set, especially the, like in my earlier career, being on set, <laughs> being told I was in my natural habitat because I was standing in the forest because I'm indigenous, getting um, uh, yeah. staple removers thrown at me, uh, a lot, a lot of negative. Getting told I was a, I don't want to swear, but a, a swear word because I wasn't paying taxes. Wow. Um, and it was in, it was just, it was, it was not a great experience, but I knew struggling through all of that. I was going to make it easier for the next person when I had my own set mm. to make them feel included and safe and respected. Mm. Um, and that's the mentality behind the film fam. And mm. we're trying to learn how to do that as much as we possibly can. Um, and recreating, recreating a new blueprint. Mm. Like we need, like they're honestly in this industry as a, as a person who is, uh, you know, indigenous black or a person of color, it's, uh, we have to create our own blueprints mm. again, because the blueprint that we have now isn't working for us. Yeah. 
I want to come back to Pegwa's First Nation as we finish up. And a little video that I saw, I'm, I'm not sure if it's on your actual webpage, but it's it's around a story that you told. And, and it is called, I believe, When Winds Crash. And yeah. it features uh, someone you're doing a little story on from your community, right? Uh, John yeah. Paul Travers. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was my first project I've ever like made as a director. I wrote yeah. it, and I, and I was really inspired by John Paul's story as this, uh, you know, this person that doesn't let binary dictate how they feel on a day to day basis. They actually how they feel that day is how they dress, mm. how they talk, how they yeah. act. Mm. Um, and it was an incredible story and I'm like, I, like myself being two-spirited and really learning about what that is because two-spirited is different for everybody. Sure. But for this particular person, I was so inspired by them that yeah. I made this project and, um, you know, all I had was a shack, which we filmed in, right. a literal shack that was wow. like, every, all this junk was behind me and I just threw up a black sheet and like a table with makeup. <laughs> And I made it work, yeah. and uh, and you know I had like a I had a I had a pretty good editing um, software, so I, I yeah. stabilized everything as best as I could, um, and you know I got to use my friend's drone and uh, did some uh, drone shots. So it was it was a it was experience. Uh, you know, documentary is something that I didn't think I would like flourish in uh, very well, uh, but I think I did a pretty good job. Huh. Um, and that project actually got my first series called uh, Daybreak People through Five TV One right. with um, MTS. I think it's called Stories and oh, MTS Stories from Home. Mm. And they created this uh, project about how important artists are and how important art is in community for self-expression because we were lacking a little bit in that sector. Luckily, now hopefully after the pandemic, uh, we get to do create more arts like. Um, you know, the TLE is, is is wanting to fund me to create like this, um, I guess, kind of like filmmaking course. So for Pegwis and Fish River, and hopefully that can come to fruition someday. Like I'm just so busy right now that I, <laughs> that I can't really uh, focus on that. But I, I 100% want to someday yeah. because I think, it, like I said, it's really important to take it back to the reserve yeah. and show kids that just because you are from a reserve doesn't mean you can't take over the world. So, <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> Ryan, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to say uh, ago and Jimmy Gwetch for taking the time to join us and, and share, uh, you know, things about yourself and, and about the great uh, opportunities that are coming your way and, and all the best in the future. Look forward to hearing more about you. Oh, thank you so much. This is so exciting. And I really appreciate you taking the time to allow me to share space with you and your listeners. And I hope that uh, the listeners enjoyed this conversation. And, you know, if anybody ever wants to reach out and learn about anything, um, you know, I'm always here. Please reach out to my social medias, Ryan Cooper on Instagram, Facebook. I am. I, if you want to be a part of this industry, I'll help you be a part of this industry. Very nicely said. What a way for us to finish the uh, conversation today. Uh, again, Ryan, uh, Chimiguach, Nyawagoa for taking the time to join us, and, and we really appreciate it. And congratulations and all the best uh, with the Warren Media Access Canada uh, Writers Program, which you are a finalist in. So, uh, yeah, we'll be looking for uh, you out there, and, uh, and hopefully we can have another conversation in the future. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. All right. Have a nice evening. Right. Uh, bye. Hey, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>
And that is Ryan Cooper. He is a finalist in the Warren Media Access Canada Writers Program, as we just mentioned. He's also from the Peguis First Nation of Ojibwe Heritage. And it was a pleasure speaking with him. That is this part of the show. Please don't go away. We'll be back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, we have with us Mr. Alex Marland. He is a professor of political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And he is here to talk about an article he authored in the conversation. It is entitled... Historically, how important is the 2021 Canadian election? So it's a pleasure to have uh, Alex with us on the show. He also is the author of a book, his book, Whipped. It's a party discipline in Canada, a UBC Press production, and takes readers behind the scenes of the Canadian parliamentary politics and reveals the clandestine world of message discipline. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the program. You bet. And, of course, your article is a very timely one. We are in the midst of this election and we have developments going on. I, I think it's interesting also because the, the, the title itself, How Important Is This Election? It, it feels like, uh, it, it doesn't feel that important to me. Am I, are you feeling that? Well, it's interesting because when I, when I first started thinking about this, I was looking at what Trudeau had said when he, he uh, asked the governor general to dissolve uh, parliament and mm. trigger the election. And his comment was that this is certainly the most important election in our lifetimes and perhaps the most important election since 1945. And that really seemed like a bit of rhetoric. Like that just seemed really overstated. You know, it's, I think it's important to really to Justin Trudeau and it's certainly an important election. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot going on obviously with the pandemic, but mm. What I hadn't anticipated when I was writing this piece was just how long it would go on for Trudeau with the question of why are we having an election? (laughs) And usually voters get irritated when there's an election call, especially an early one. They grumble for a few days Mm -hmm. and then it kind of wears off. And I was thinking, well, you know, maybe that would be the case this time. But in fact, it's not been like that at all. If anything, it just seems to be building in this groundswell of anger. There's no obvious reason to have been going to the polls so early compared to when they needed to go. And everybody seems to recognize that the only real reason to go is because Trudeau wanted to get more liberal MPs and more power. He wants a majority government. And of course, majority governments have incredible power compared to minority parliaments. Mm. And yet it seems like he is taking a bit of a, uh, a gamble by doing so. Yeah, well, anytime you go to the, uh, you know, go to the, an election, there's always a gamble. Of course. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would say that they must have been looking at what has happened in all sorts of other provinces with, um, you know, governments growing from minorities to uh, majorities. Uh, the Conservatives and the NDP and the Greens and the Bloc have all kind of not been able to get much traction against the Liberals. Mm. And so there was a lot of reason for optimism, I think, in Liberal circles about the possibility of making seat gains. But instead, what we're finding is that so far, and, you know, it's still early days in the election. A lot of people won't really pay attention till after Labor Day and after the leaders' debates. But right. uh, early indications are the Liberal campaign is not going very well. 
Yeah, I just uh, recently heard something about uh, how the uh, Conservatives uh, and the the uh, the NDP are are both uh, gaining ground, and the Liberals are are losing ground at this point. However, this poll was also talking about how if it came down to the wire, um, that uh, voters that don't necessarily vote Liberal. Uh, if it came down to the wire between the conservatives and the liberal, they would they would put their vote behind the liberal party. So you also pointed out about how in your article uh, about how Trudeau made mention of the election of, of 1945. And, uh, of course, that was a time when uh, the country was coming back uh, from from uh, a war and turning things around at that point. I, I, I mean, I understand what their analogy is. I mean, if you. If you look at it, there's been nothing that has affected everybody in society since mm-hmm. World War II the way mm-hmm. this pandemic has. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at, you know, Vietnam War. You can look at 9/11, uh, the economic crisis uh, of 2008-2009, recessions, all this sort of thing. Nothing compares to what we've been going through with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so they're really trying to say, well, look, you know, this is about building the country in a way and going forward. They want to you know, build back better is kind of a catchphrase some progressives are using. And the idea is that you're going to fundamentally reshape Canadian society the way that a lot of people might think happened after 1945. But uh, the reality is that it's not really a good comparison that, mm. um, you know, the World War Two was was much different than the pandemic, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the even the, the election in 1945, I mean, in fact, the liberals didn't do particularly well in that election. They ended up with a minority government. Right. The prime minister wasn't elected, uh, Mackenzie King, in his own seat. So he had to end up getting elected in a by-election. So that's not exactly the kind of example you want to, to evoke. And then on top of that, there have been some really important elections since 1945. And so I think that uh, when the Liberals pulled out that particular phrase, they were probably focusing on on how important it is to the Liberals and to Trudeau's career. Mm. But I think in retrospect, it turns out that the 2019 election was really important. We didn't know COVID was on the agenda. Right. And yet so much has happened under the Liberal government in the past couple of years that really who ended up winning the 2019 uh, election is is was historically now it's going to be being quite important yeah exactly um and and you you point out that and you point out the other important um elections over time as well and i found that really interesting but um can you elaborate more on what you mean by that about the 2019 election well because in the 2019 the conservative party led by andrew Scheer got more votes than the liberals did and yet the way the electoral system works it turned out that the Liberals ended up um, with a minority of seats. They had a minority of government. Justin Trudeau stayed on as prime minister. Um, But, you know, had things gone slightly different, had the Conservatives got just a few percentage points more, um, Andrew Scheer could be prime minister. And Mm. you could well imagine that the approach that the Conservatives Mm. would have taken in a minority parliament uh, would have probably been, you know, there would have been a lot of similarities, but it also would have been quite different than how the Liberals approach things. I mean, all you have to do is take a look at how conservative premiers across Canada have approached the pandemic Mm. compared to uh, Liberal and NDP premiers to get a sense of how much different things would have been had the Conservatives been put into office after the 2019 election. So I think retroactively looking back at things, the 2019 election was actually quite significant. And we can't predict where things are going, But as things stand, 2019 
it's probably more important than 2021 in terms of the election. But again, who knows where things are going uh, from this point forward. In order to, to really test Trudeau's comment about uh, the 2021 election being important, we're going to need years of hindsight. And obviously, none of us can do that. Yeah. You know, the other thing your article talked about was how this COVID threw the focus onto Trudeau. He became the spokesperson for Canada. We watched him every morning, you know, as he got out and gave the report. And, and you know, that was unusual because we would never have gotten that uh, had COVID not hit. We wouldn't have seen Trudeau as much in in uh, in our face every morning, uh, giving us those updates on how things were going as, as he came out of his home, you know. And and I thought, wow, yeah, that's right. That was going on every day. and And it made me think, well, just now, as I was thinking about this, is I wonder what that did to, if at all, uh, affected him in, in, in his psyche at all. Well, I think, yeah, you raised a really interesting point. And it's worth, you know, just thinking back to after the 2019 election. Um, I think that a lot of liberals, the Trudeau especially, realized that he wasn't nearly as popular in 2019 as he had been in 2015 when there was this sort of wave mm. of support. And mm. You know, they, the Liberals really made a point, and, you know, it's ultimately Trudeau who makes the decision, of kind of staying out of the public eye after the 2019 election. Christopher Freeland um, mm. became the government's main spokesperson right. as intergovernmental affairs minister at the time, and she was everywhere. Right. And then the pandemic hit, and suddenly it was Trudeau, and Trudeau was everywhere. Yep. And people seemed to like that. Mm. And I think it really helped rejuvenate things for him. He went from trying to stay out of the public eye to really enjoying the limelight. Mm, yes, very true. Uh, you also made mention of some of the other important elections over time, and I thought that was really interesting to make some comparisons and look back at some of those things. Do you mind mentioning some of those other elections you were talking about? Uh, sure. Well, in the 1960s, uh, there were elections that end up, well, actually, even before the 60s, if we look at uh, in the late 1950s and uh, 57 and 58, there were elections that ended up having John Diefenbaker as prime minister. And that was that was a real shocker because in the 1957 election, the Liberals were looking for yet another majority government. They'd been in office for 22 consecutive years. And being in office so long kind of has a way of building up resentment. And people were getting tired. And they saw um, uh, Louis Saint Laurent as sort of this his position as you know, Uncle Louis is how he was uh, advertised. But mm. then you had this fiery, dynamic speaker and John Diefenbaker and the television uh, coverage of him. It was it was, you know, really a new medium and the ability to see this fiery speaker on television really getting animated and mm. talking often about how important Parliament was uh, compared to the government just doing what it wanted led to a really shocking result in 1957 in a PC minority and then in 58 in a PC majority. So that was that was one uh, set that was quite important mm. in terms of it really fractured the party system. It really changed the way that Canadian politics worked because mm -hmm. suddenly there was an option other than voting liberal all the time. Right. And then another series of important elections occurred in 63 and 65. That was when uh, Lester Pearson ended up being becoming prime minister. And that period of minority governance saw the Liberals collaborate with the NDP quite a bit, and it created all sorts of social programs that really 
um, still today form the, the social safety net that we have, uh, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, old age, or sorry, Canada pension plan, student loans. Um, but on top of that, also the Canadian Maple Leaf flag in 1965. It was a real period of acrimony, but it was also a period of a lot of social progress. And then there were others beyond that. Um, some that come to mind, the 1988 free trade election was mm-hmm. enormous mm-hmm. in terms of getting people to decide, you know, do you want Canada to engage in a free trade right. existence with lower tariffs uh, and in the economy with the United States. And that set the precursor for NAFTA with uh, Mexico in the early 90s. And then, of course, uh, I would say the 1980 uh, election was a huge one because in 1980, uh, Pierre Trudeau had stepped down. Uh, Joe Clark was prime minister. Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau wasn't going to lead the Liberals into the next election. Suddenly, the Clark Liberals, or sorry, the Clark Conservatives, lose on a non-confidence vote right. on a budget that a lot of people were found un- unpalatable. They were back at the polls and the Trudeau Liberals end up winning a majority. And the period of 1980-84 when Trudeau Liberals were leading a government uh, was when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed and when the Constitution of Canada was patriated. Right. And not only are those significant and still have repercussions today, they also set off a real firestorm of controversy in Quebec that led to things like the Mutual Lake Accord in 87 under Mulroney and the Charlottetown Accord in 92 under Mulroney of trying to bring Canada, uh, Quebec back into kind of the Canadian Federation. So all these things were going on. And then the, the next one that I'd remark on is the ni- 2008 election. And that was when Stephen Harper was similar to Trudeau this time, was trying to get turn a minority into a majority. Uh, but there was a, you know, a major global crisis going on. The economy was in meltdown, American banks and housing uh, prices were in free fall. Um, But he only ended up getting a stronger minority government. And in that case, of course, not everybody was impacted by the economic changes when the stock market collapses. And for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. But the pandemic is quite different, of course, because it affects all of us. Yes. You know, the 1993 election, you point out about uh, two established national parties were displaced in favor of two regional parties. I thought that was interesting. I kind of forgot about that, actually. Yeah, goodness. I just did just that second. But frankly, whenever um, you ask a Canadian political scientist, what are the most important elections in Canadian history? And a lot of us would turn to the uh, 1957-58 period when there was the Diefenbaker uh, concerns that I just mentioned. And 1993 stands out as what most of us would call an election earthquake. And that's because there was so much frustration with the Brian Mulroney conservatives, although by that time it was led by uh, Kim Campbell. Mm. And it was just this real annoyance at establishments Mm. and at established parties. And so lots of Canadians ended up turning away from the conservative, progressive conservatives and away from the NDP. And they went towards the Bloc Québécois in Quebec. And in Western Canada, they went towards the Reform Party. And although the Liberals um, formed a government under Jean Chrétien, a majority government, uh, the real shocking part about that election was that the Bloc Québécois with 54 seats became Her Majesty's loyal official opposition. Mm. Uh, The Reform Party with 52 seats were close behind. And meanwhile, the Progressive Conservatives, this powerful force that had formed a government two consecutive uh, elections in a row, uh, an historically powerful um, party, uh, was reduced to nine seats, Mm -hmm. or sorry, to two seats. And, uh, you know, basically almost to non-existence. Yeah. And the NDP, which had always been the third party, 
um, or at least since the 60s, um, was reduced to nine seats. Yeah. And to have official party status in the House of Commons, you need 12 seats. That's so you can get extra yeah. resources and have right. time in the House. And uh, they didn't make it. So the 93 election was really significant. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, thinking back on that. But, you know, what's funny is this COVID situation has made anything prior to COVID seem so long ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, a, a big issue in the last election campaign was um, how Justin Trudeau was uh, treating uh, women in his caucus, for example. Mm. Or you think yeah. about the SNC-Lavalin affair mm. and all sorts of people talking about Jody Wilson-Raybould and right. Jane Philpott. And, yep. you know, pipelines was another big issue in the last election campaign. I mean, climate change. I mean, these are things that are still out there. But for the most part, for a lot of people, they're talking about healthcare. They are still talking about climate change. But the pandemic has to be at the forefront of everybody's mind at the moment. Yeah, and pushed everything else uh, to the back. Uh, You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. My guest on the show is Alex Marland. He's a professor of political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland. We are talking to him about his article he authored in the conversation. Historically, how important is the 2021 Canadian election? It's a pleasure to have Alex on the show. And... You know, you mentioned off the top also about how this question around this election, why have this election, is sort of a, a dogging a Trudeau since uh, it's following him around. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's kind of interesting is some of the news coverage showing that there's been these protesters yeah. at where he's um, showing up for events and how Aaron O'Toole, his leader of the Conservative Party, is you know not holding the same number of events. Mm. It is interesting for somebody like me and trying to understand, you know, why do parties do what they do? Right. You know, Trudeau really is following kind of the the tried and trusted model of going around, trying to have a tour. The media follows you. You make announcements. You get good pu- publicity about whatever it is you're announcing or you hope to. And, you know, that worked for Trudeau in 2015. Um, it worked a little less so in 2019. This year, it's a real problem for him because protesters are mobilizing and booing him. Mm-hmm. And so the news coverage lately has been about booing as opposed yes. to whatever it is that the Liberals were hoping to announce. And so they've made some changes to that by not announcing their schedule quite as quickly or publicly as they had previously. And so that's an interesting element. Meanwhile, O'Toole is holding some telephone town halls from uh, inside, uh, at, you know, in a conservative built area. And so when they're kind of inoculating themselves from the outside world, and yet they're using technology to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. The media finds this kind of interesting, but the media also gets irritated because journalists want to have access and and be the ones telling the stories. They don't want politicians who bypass the media and uh, try to connect directly with voters um, without that sort of interpretation, filter, or context that only a journalist can really offer. Right. Now, of course, uh, one of the things that uh, is still important and was uh, right up there with COVID was it was the climate crisis we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, we've had these wildfires out west. We've had some in northern Ontario. Uh, we've had drought. We've had a bunch of things that, that show that the climate is, in fact, uh, up there. Um, are you hearing any, anything around the climate uh, in, in what's going on out there with the politicians? Um. You know, I can say certainly, uh, you know, from people I've talked to, um, the, 
it's very clear that a lot of these forest fires are top of mind in among the people who are affected. Uh, whereas in other parts of the country, the forest fires aren't really, you know, at the, at the top of mind issue. Mm. Um, the thing about climate change is, I think, I think to give a sense that it's not as burning an issue, and pardon the pun, as maybe some other years, is first of all, it's very common whenever the economy gets into a difficult spot that people move away from being concerned about the climate or the environment generally and towards worrying about the economy. They start worrying about jobs. They worry about uh, how government will pay for things and this kind of thing because it's more pressing, it's more urgent, it's more immediate. Um, So to some extent, maybe we're seeing that. I mean, climate change is still important to a lot of people. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm just saying, why is it not a a, a top issue? Mm. And that's one of the reasons. Um, but I think we can also see why it's not a top issue is because we don't have a, a strong Green Party really pushing issues and, you know, talking about the climate the way that they had more credibility in previous campaigns. Coming into this campaign, uh, the leader, Enemy Paul, has, has been going all sorts of going through all sorts of trouble trying to manage your party, um, you know, party executives trying to um, ouster essentially and yeah. uh, that the Greens lost uh, an MP who crossed the floor to the Liberals in Fredericton. Mm. And so all the coverage about the Greens, the Green Party, over the summer was negative. And there's even a a recent report um, that is saying that there's all sorts of racism within the Green Party. These are not the kinds of things the Green Party wants to be getting attention for. They want to be getting attention for calling the other parties out for not paying enough attention to climate change or not doing enough. And so there is a definite difference this time around compared to 2019. Yeah, no kidding, because uh, if there was ever an election uh, around, as we've been talking about the climate and what's going on, uh, this would have been the time that, that the Green Party could definitely have taken advantage of that. Well, I mean, when everybody's thinking about the pandemic, I think it's a bit hard to, to advance climate change issues. I mean, if, if somebody's worried about whether or not they're, they've being vaccinated, they're worried about, um, or, or they're concerned about, you know, mandates about wearing masks or vaccine passports or bringing kids back into school mm-hmm. or uh, having to go back into a workplace setting themselves. They're worried about their job. They're worried about government benefits ending. I mean, they're worried about all sorts of things that are the immediate. Whereas the thing about climate change is a lot of the time you can't see it. And also, it's something that is down the road as opposed to happening necessarily today that you can feel. Unless you're sitting there and you're freezing your house because there's no power for the past three days, and that can be attributed to some form of climate change. Uh, Or, you know, you're dealing with a flood or fires or something that you can directly say, this is climate change. That's when you're going to feel a need to deal with it. But if those things are not in your life at the exact moment, And right now you're worried and scared about, you know, contracting COVID or you're worried about not being able to travel or all these things. Those worries are pushing aside or at least competing with concerns about uh, climate change. Uh, The other thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, the last over the last year, uh, last couple of years as well. um, A lot of things have happened in and around uh, residential schools. We've, of course, seen the discovery of of unmarked graves out west and at a number of other residential schools. Uh, That was uh, also uh, something I thought might be uh, we be hearing about in the election. So far, I haven't really heard much. Yeah, I would agree. For something that was uh, at the forefront of media coverage for you know a, a 
good period of time. Um, most of what I have seen just had to do with, uh, you know, I saw some headlines about Aaron O'Toole saying, well, you know, it's time to start putting up the Canadian flag again. Why is it still at half mast on, on government buildings? But uh, otherwise, it, it doesn't seem to be coming up as an issue. Um, even to some extent, maybe, uh, you know, a lot of what's happening in Afghanistan hasn't been coming mm-hmm. up as much as right. perhaps some people would like. And, and really why I'm bringing, tying those together is, is saying that it, it raises a broader question about, you know, what is this election about? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these different issues going on, all these things that people can agree are important. And yet at the same time, it seems like the parties are, are failing to kind of get traction on any particular yeah issue or agenda that people can say well you know this is the the real uh, reason why we're having this election at all yeah it's interesting it kind of brings it right back to the the whole point of your article about uh, how important this election is right now and why we're having it uh, which you you say is important for trudeau so let's look at uh, as we finish up talk about trudeau again if things don't go well he might end up with a majority if he doesn't end up with a majority and we end up with uh, a major a minority uh, liberal party once again what will what will really have changed and what will then ha- happen or change within his party, if anything? Yeah, so it's, it's always difficult to talk about hypotheticals, except that we can get a sense of what's happened, you know, historically. Mm. And one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the Trudeau Liberals could get fewer seats than the Conservatives, and yet Trudeau remains Prime Minister until he's no longer Prime Minister. In other words, uh, they could range, make some, you know, depending if, if they're close in terms of number of seats, mm they could come to a, some sort of agreement with the Liberals, or sorry, with the NDP, right. who could keep them in power. So I think for the the Conservatives to form a government, uh, even a minority government, they'd have to have a you know a good advantage over the, the Liberals. Mm. But the point is, I think, that if the Liberals are knocked down to a smaller, thinner minority, a lot of Liberals are going to be really irked with Trudeau mm. uh, for uh, you know what would be seen as a colossal mm. miscalculation. And mm. There'll be more, you know, his, his control over the party will will diminish somewhat and people will start saying, you know, is he really the guy and the leader who mm. we want for the next election? Mm. You know, and so you start having a lot of that rumbling emerge and there's been a lot of loyalty to Trudeau. I mean, for so many reasons within that party. Um, but I think that there'll also be people who start saying, well, is it time for somebody else? I mean, one thing I'm always struck by is the fact that as much as the liberals talk about you know, supporting women and uh, and being, you know, Trudeau being a feminist, it, it's always amazing to me that the, the Liberal Party of Canada is the only major party that has not had a, a woman as a leader of the party, mm-hmm. uh, you know, notwithstanding the bloc, but mm-hmm. the, the only major federal party that has not had a woman leader. Mm. Right. Interesting. Well, the, the NDP seems to be uh, gaining ground a little bit. Yeah, and Jagmeet Singh definitely has a lot of uh, people who like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you like the NDP or not might be another matter, but a lot of people see him as a, a credible leader. He is definitely, uh, in my opinion, um, acting as somebody who has more experience than he did last time. He's more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's got a lot more credibility. And yet at the same time in English Canada, we don't tend to hear as much about uh, Blanchet as uh, right. leader of the the Bloc Québécois, right. and of course there's Annemi Paul, and uh, we haven't heard as much about her, but a lot of that is because of the negativity associated with the Greens, as I mentioned. So I think that a lot of pollsters would say, uh, watch out for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP because they could end up surprising uh, quite a number of people. Yes. 
Well, Alex, we'll have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, talk to us about this election coming up uh, September 20th. Thank you very much for your article. Historically, how important is this 2021 Canadian election? You can check it out in the conversation. It is authored by Alex Marland. He is a professor of political science at Memorial University of Newfoundland. been a pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on the program, David. You bet. Take care. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.